are you guys doing tonight? You guys happy to be here? Let's, let's try something. I grew up in a, a pretty old church, and we used to say something every time we got together. The minister would say, he is risen, and then the congregation would say back, he is risen indeed. So let's just try that for celebration. He is risen. Amen, amen. We are here tonight to celebrate the same truth that we've celebrated for 2,000 years, that Christ has victoriously raised, and because of that, we have hope. Amen? So tonight, I want to begin, um, we're going to talk about investments a lot tonight. And right away, some of you may have like backed up in your chairs, some of you may have scooted forward, you've been trying to find that, that magical plan that Matthias has for having quick wealth multiplied like multiplying your money. I I just, I'm here to tell you, we don't have that. We probably wouldn't want that formula. That would be a dangerous one to have. But I do have uh, a story about a friend in college. I think I've told a story about this friend from college once or twice before. His name was Chris Bass. And of course, we had to call him Seabass because we were in college. That's what you do. Um, So Seabass was the the guy in our friendship circle, I was in a fraternity, he was the guy who knew what he was talking about all the time. Just ask Seabass, okay? He knows what he's doing, he's got the inside, he's got the inside scoop on something. This guy, I mean, he was not afraid to share his opinions. He was a walking Facebook rant before that became a thing. Like, that's just who he was all the time. Uh, he was a fairly good salesman, he could get you to, to he could convince you of stuff, he could he could tell you things, try to make you believe things, but at, at the end of the day, like Seabass thought he was way cooler than what he really was, which meant that he was really, it made sense that we were friends. Like that, that's, that's my company because, you know, my, I'll just leave that alone. Seabass came to us about 2005 in college and Seabass, his parents had moved from, from Missouri to Texas and so he didn't really have a homeland to go back to in the summertime uh, like we so graciously have so many of you guys who've come to hang with us over the summer from here, going to school other places. But, but Seabass said, guys, I've got it all figured out. I know how I'm going to make a serious amount of money this summer. And so we're like, all right, well, tell us about it. He's like, well, you know, I'm going to travel. I'm going to live in New Jersey this summer. And uh, I'm going to do some sales. I just, I, I know this is going to make a ton of bank. And, and if you guys are interested, you should come check it out with me. So we pressed him a little further on this. We're like, so so you're going to New Jersey, you're doing sales. So what are you doing? Are you like in stocks or are you like telemarketing? I mean, what's, what is this job that you're talking about? Well, finally push comes to, to shove and Seabass says, I'm gonna walk door to door all throughout downtown New Jersey selling sets of printed encyclopedias to people. And you gotta remember this is 2005. So a really big thing had happened called the internet was born and pretty much when the internet came along, it sort of did away, made obsolete every form of, of, you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica. Anybody have the world book of the Encyclopedia Britannica at your house growing up? Nope. Yeah, we got a few lingering. Like me growing up, I thought that if somebody had that full set sitting on their mantle, that they really either had a lot of money or were super smart. In retrospect, I don't know how much anybody ever read the Encyclopedia Britannica more than just wanting people to see that they owned a full encyclopedia set above their fireplace. So Seabass, of course, he goes out. Poor guy. Uh, we were not too surprised about this. He comes back at the end of the summer, and we're all curious. We're like, so Seabass, how did that encyclopedia sales thing go? And he said, well, well I, I'll skip what he said because it didn't sound too good. But what happened was 
um, Seabass not only didn't come back with a lot more money in his bank account, Seabass came back um, having made no money and actually owed a lot of money because what I, what I failed to share with you was that Seabass had to purchase personally his entire inventory of encyclopedia sets before he would go sell them. So, you know, all the, like, down-faced, saddening awes that I'm hearing right now, we didn't have any of that. We just laughed at him for, like, <laughs> probably a solid seven months. We just laughed at him. I mean, poor guy, no money, and a whole bunch of sets of encyclopedias sitting in his, in his basement. Uh, there are things called good investments, and there are things called bad investments. And so before we get into talking about what, what an investment is, uh, I want to look at what the definition of it is. Definition, according to the dictionary, would say an investment is an outlay of money, usually for income or profit. Usually. If you invest something, if you give something, if you put your money on the table, you invest it into a particular stock, or you have a particular resource that is very meaningful to you and and it's valuable, but you invest it, you intend on, on getting a return back on that. You intend for it to be bigger when it comes back to you. That's a good investment. A bad investment is, is, when you, is when you sink a bunch of money into something or you put your time and energy into resources into something and it comes back smaller than when you had it. That, that's a bad investment. Um, just a show of hands, any Shark Tank fans in here? Does anybody in here watch the show Shark Tank? Okay, a silent, a silent minority. Okay, Shark Tank. Uh, for those of you who know, I mean, Shark Tank is this show basically that deals on this idea of what is a good investment. There's all kinds of people pitching um, what they would believe would be a good investment. I, I just need like a cool million dollars and I'll get it back to you, I promise. You know, it's, it's that basically in a really big show. Um, here's a question. Does anybody know what these are? Okay, Beanie Babies, yes. Does anybody have said Beanie Babies in your possession like at home? Maybe in your purse. So here's the deal. You know, 2005 was when the internet, you know, sort of made print encyclopedias obsolete. If you had a grandma in 1998, you knew what a Beanie Baby was, okay? Because if you picture, um, if you picture, picture what it looks like at a sporting goods store like Finish Line or Champ Sports, picture what it looks like when a, a new pair of Air Jordans are released. I used to work at Finish Line, and every time we would release Jordans, we had to have like two times the staff and a security guard, because like people would be lined up at like 5 a.m. You know, to get in when the mall opens, and it would just be bum rushing trying to buy these terribly expensive shoes. And so um, picture that. It's exactly like that, but all of the teenagers are grandmothers, and it's the Hallmark store, okay? <laughs> Back in 1998, these little guys... And actually, sadly, I didn't look up these. I need to look up these specific ones because um, these could be worth something. But here's, here's, the, here's the line that would run all over the place back in the late 90s, early 2000s, is that these Beanie Babies, you could purchase them for an easy five bucks. These Beanie Babies, in a relatively short amount of time, would appreciate so much that these were actually a sound investment. You think, well, you know, I got some stock in Walmart and Apple and I got like 10,000 Beanie Babies. I'm waiting for those things to, to appreciate. True story. I, I looked and, and I actually found original slips online that, that showed people's original, like this is what would come with a Beanie Baby. And, and one said, you know, purchase price, $5. Uh, appreciation, a projected value in 2008, 10 years later from 1998 when they were released. In 2008, they projected that, that one of them I saw would be worth $1,000. 
Um, another one I saw, actually, they, they projected that this $5 Beanie Baby in 1998 would be worth uh, $5,000 in 2008. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that there's a couple in the batch that seem to fetch maybe a few hundred bucks if you know where you're looking. But, but for the most part, you can find these guys on eBay for like $1.99, okay? <laughs> and another sad story, just like my friend Seabass, I did, I did find a story of a couple that... Um, that they have over $100,000 of their money invested in Beanie Babies. Not like in the company Beanie Babies, not, not Ty, this company that makes them, they have $100,000 worth of Beanie Babies. And I, I mean, I just hate to have to store that kind of thing. I mean, but tragically, I mean, they're, they're, they're um, well, Beanie Babies are a bad investment and their marriage actually didn't stand the test of time either. So in the divorce proceedings, it was a big legal fight over who got which Beanie Babies. I mean, I'm, I'm serious about this. It's... As terrible, we, at, at Matthias, I should give a disclaimer, we believe divorce is horrible. But if you have to separate Beanie Babies even more, that's even more of like the extra mile of terribleness. There are some things, I'm going to set these guys down here. I want to be careful. I kind of feel like they're worth something now. I don't want to like just set them on the ground. If these are gone after this is over, then I'm coming for you. Some, <laughs> whoever's got it. Uh, Here's the thing. We've been, we've been wrestling for five weeks. Pastor Mark has done a, a phenomenal job teaching 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This epic reality that Brandon just got done uh, proclaiming that, that Jesus rose from the grave. And the good news for us is that it's not just Jesus who's rising from the grave. It's a part of God's huge, massive project of new creation. Everything that happened in Christ is only the first fruits of what is to come for us who believe in Christ. So this amazing victory is the end of chapter 15. And then we transition into chapter 16, which is usually, I mean, you can confess this, usually about the time you start slowing down on your reading plan. This is the stuff that we're going to start getting into are some of the practical details, some travel plans, some, some, some specific instructions. And uh, the resurrection, for most people, doesn't really hold up much of, a, much of a, a, a case against that. So usually this is about when people start checking out. But I promise you, I promise you, that as we stay in God's true word tonight, that even in the nitty-gritty specifics, there are gold mines of, of stuff in here. And so I want to start just by reading these last two verses of, of where we came from in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57 and 58. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory, the victory, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Translation is this. After this epic reality of the resurrection, know that what you do today matters. Keep doing what you're doing for the Lord. Yes, you, even messed up, broken, and glorious church in Corinth, and the same thing for us tonight. Here's the statement that's gonna really guide us through tonight. This is what I want you to think about. God's mission is a solid investment. It's not just a good investment, it's the best investment. It's something solid, it's something that won't shift, it's something that won't change. But is it for you? Is God's mission a solid investment in your life? So many things that we're gonna get into, they're gonna wrestle with how do we know uh, and what does it look like for us to play our role? What is the mission? The spread of the gospel over the whole entire face of the world. That that the youngest and the oldest and everybody between would hear the gospel and would believe in the name of King Jesus, be saved. And that God through that would do this great resurrection gospel work all throughout the world. So what are our roles in that? I hope that you wrestle with that 
tonight as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to go through verses 1 through 11 tonight. Now concerning the collection for the saints, Paul says in verse 1, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. So there's, there's a collection going on for a group of Christians in Jerusalem, we're going to find out, that, that Paul spends a lot of time gathering money from various churches throughout his missionary journeys, especially on this third missionary journey, to rally up funds to provide for these Christians who were in desperate need in Jerusalem. Christians who are, are facing some forms of persecution, Christians who are maybe, uh, their, their jobs are being affected because they're Christians now, maybe they can't work as much or at all. And so Paul says every one of our churches has an opportunity to rally around those who are needy in our midst. He says on in verse 2, on the first day of the week to this church in Corinth, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So it reveals a few awesome things. Right away, this is New Testament evidence that the early church met on the first day of the week, that it changed from a Saturday Sabbath in the, in the Jewish ways into a Sunday resurrection, Sunday celebration that the church embraced. And so Paul says, as you gather from Sunday to Sunday, begin taking a collection. And, and long story short, start doing it now so that when we get there, it's not too crazy so that I don't have to do it. Because when I get there, I want to get to work. And so he says, gather them all up as he may prosper here in verse two. He doesn't say, um, what you all need to do is set aside 10%. Okay, as awesome as a tithing principle is, I'm, I'm firmly convinced that it's totally an Old Testament category. In the New Testament, the only thing we have is there's need and God has given, so therefore we give out of what we've been given freely. So he says, as he may prosper, as not, not out of compulsion, but as you are prospered by the Lord, out of that abundance, you're called to give to the Lord. And certainly that's different for everybody in this church and in ours. He says in verse three, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable, verse four, that I should go also, they will accompany me. So um, we have three things tonight that we could say a whole lot more things, but from just from this passage, just these 11 verses at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, I believe we're gonna see three things that are opportunities for us to participate in God's mission. The first one is this. We participate in God's mission by giving him our money and possessions, by giving him our money and possessions. We live in a culture, in a world, in our part of the world especially, where this is very difficult. Because in our part of the world, the narrative goes something like this. You are what you own, or you are what you can buy. Even if you can't afford it, that's who you are. You can buy that. You can get a loan for it, you know. Uh, You are the possessions that you have, the money that you have in the bank. And so Paul is clearly exhorting this church um, Varying means, varying life situations. He says, you have an opportunity to give of your, of your money. Elsewhere in Acts, we see the church giving their resources all over the place to any who have need. And so we can participate in God's mission by giving him our money and our possessions. But, but what, if, what if we feel like we really can't give that much? When I first came to this church, I was, I was in very struggling financial, a, a bad financial situation. And, and it has a lot to do with, with a lot of my story that I've been very public about, basically legal fees and remodeling a house. That, I mean, get this, I, I, I bought a house in O'Fallon, Missouri that depreciated when the bubble burst, it depreciated by $50,000. And like looking back, I'm like, man, shame on me for, for building a stupid house. 
in effect, like, why didn't anybody tell me that this bubble was going to burst, you know? But that was an issue. There were a lot of other fees that were going on. I, I was trying to adjust back to, back to single life and things like that. Um, I was in a really tough spot. It was, it was a struggle. And I really battled this a lot. Like, I don't have that much. So what does it matter if, if, if I give? I don't know that I can really give as much as any of these people here anyway. There was like 100 people at Matthias Lot Church when I came to it. So I'm just like, automatically I thought that whatever money everybody else had, I probably had just a little bit less. Not too much less, because I wanted to feel better about myself, but just a little bit less, you know. I mean, I fit in, but I'm, I know I'm just under, under that. No, there's an opportunity. Jesus says, I mean, the, the par excellence example of giving from your abundance is in the Gospels where Jesus looks at the widow who gives her offering in the Sabbath in the synagogue, and he says to all the rich people, she's given more than any of you guys. All of you guys who have thousands of dollars, this widow who gave two pennies, she's given way more than you've given. And you understand why rich people back in the day didn't like Jesus, you know. Uh, Jesus was homeless and poor, by the way. And so I really had to wrestle with this. What does it look like? Because I could get really legalistic to think that, well, in order for me to give in a way that's, that's, that's meaningful, it's got to be a certain amount. And the reality is, is that sacrificial is so different for everybody. Maybe we need to also call it prosperous giving. If it didn't sound too prosperity gospel, I would call it prosperous giving. But the reality is, is that when we give, man, it's, it's in full recognition that the Lord has done way more than we've ever deserved. Amen? Like one of my mottos in life is God always, always, always gives us more than we ask for both in the good and the hard, he, he can do whatever he wants. So when we go back and give to the joy box, there we go, I was waiting for it, I was just seeing. That's a better, better response than I get at the end of the service. No, I, I hope not tonight, I hope not tonight. No, so when we give out of the abundance of what God has given us, it's, it's in full recognition that it's his, all of it's his. Not just 10%, not 90%, 100% is his in worship. So, Paul continues on in verse 15. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. He goes into his travel plans. He says, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. In verse six, he says, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. In verse seven, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. We'll stop right there. Um, go back to the previous slide, Kip, if you can, just because it has, I mean, Paul has, is giving his travel itinerary to this Corinthian church. This is about 55 AD. Paul has planted this, this Corinthian church on his second missionary journey about maybe three, four years before, and they don't have a great relationship. They don't have a bad relationship, but it's full of conflict. Paul has had to write a previous, uh, a previous letter already correcting some really tough issues that the church has been dealing with. Already this letter, we've, we've seen Paul deal with crazy stuff that you never think even should be in the Bible. We've seen him deal with some of that stuff in this First Corinthians letter because there's, there's messy situations in this church. Um, matter of fact, after First Corinthians, he's gonna, he's gonna go on to, to basically tell these Corinthians, like, the reason why I, I didn't come to you was to prevent another painful visit. So this church is definitely not, um, like the church and Paul don't have like the BFF Long, long time, we're just going history in this, but they're brothers and sisters in Christ together. So he shares what he desires to do, where he desires to go. This is how I'm, I'm seeing this playing out, because Paul's sitting in Ephesus, and he's, he's across the sea from Corinth, 
And he's saying, I want to come straight to you. And then I'm going to go around to these other places and do the mission. And then I'm going to come back to you. But then he says a very important line in verse 7 at the end. He says, if the Lord permits. If the Lord permits. And he, all over this, all over these verses, he's got these words, I, I will visit. I intend to pass. Perhaps I will do this. I hope to do that. If the Lord permits. Second thing, I believe that we have an opportunity to participate in God's mission through giving is this, number two. We have an opportunity to participate in God's mission by giving him our future plans. So here's, here's how all this plays out. Um, has anybody ever had a plan A? Like, God, I'm, playing, I'm praying for this, and you have all these steps, and there's things that you pray about, and then it works out 100% the other way. Anybody ever have that happen? Okay, my entire life is plan B, by the way. It doesn't mean that, like, it doesn't mean that that's less than plan A. It doesn't mean that that's any less than God's will, but my goodness, every single thing I've wanted, it, well, I gotta think about that. I'm a verbal processor, so I can get myself in hot water by, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna slow on that. I'll just say this, everything that I thought it was, it was gonna be like, it's gone very different and all for the better reasons. And many of those reasons are completely way more difficult than what they would have been according to my plan A. So here's the deal. I mean, other, often God's uh, mission works out through us contrary than, than the ways that we first expected. So um, if you go back Kip, to, to the big slide with, with the verses here, previous one, everything that Paul says he's gonna do here, if you fast forward and read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you learn that everything Paul says he intends to do, it happened backwards. So, you know, I, I intend to go through your way by passing through Macedonia, by doing this, by coming back, all these things. And then you read in, in 1 Corinthians, he's basically giving an explanation for how all of it worked out opposite the way he said it was going to work out in the previous letter. Uh, there's a difference that this thing that we deal with, that we struggle with a lot is... Um, is Paul's intentions versus what really happened. And Paul's intentions are good. We deal with this every day. The things that we desire, you know, ultimately, what does it look like to, to pray the things that we desire but hold on to that clause if the Lord permits? James chapter four says, says this. It says, you know, basically, woe to all you who are making your plans. You say, today and tomorrow, we're gonna go to such a place. We're gonna be there a year, about a year, give or take, you know, we're going to work a little. We're going to make a profit because we know what's going to happen. And then we're going to move on. He says, don't you realize that your life is a, a vapor, a mist? It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. James says, what you, what you should be saying is, if the Lord wills, we will live. Okay, let's start at square one, okay? If God wills, I'll wake up tomorrow. Let's just start there. We struggle so often. Let me just invite you into this. Here's part of my struggle in this is when I, I feel like, you know, we have uh, the two big concepts of God's general will and God's specific will. So his general will is faithfulness, is love. It's things that they're not hard to figure out. Like this is what the Lord likes, you know. The Bible's full of this stuff. It's, it's very easy to determine. The specific will is way more tricky to figure out. So, these things that Paul talks about, the specific will, this is what I intend. But it's if the Lord permits, and only if the Lord 
permits. It's amazing how God works through plan B, what seems to us to be plan B. Let me clue you into something. This is one of the best examples to me in, in the entire New Testament of this whole thing working out. So Paul, um, in a later letter, is uh, writing to the church in Rome. And he's writing to the church in Rome because he wants to set up a new missionary base in Rome so that he can go push into westward mission into Spain. If you read the end of, the, of, of Romans, you're, you're going to see he's going to talk about Spain for this reason. He's basically saying, I want to set up shop in Rome so that, so that Rome can be the new Antioch, so that, so that we can go west. I've got to remember that like, west for me is east for you. So here, west, there we go. So like, I, want, I really desperately desire to set up um, this, this, this partnership, this relationship, so that I can go on to Spain. And when I come back, I'm going to come back and house with you. Uh, here's, here's the reality of what happened. That never happened. Paul desired to go to Spain, but Paul never made it to Spain because before he got a chance to go, he was imprisoned and eventually executed under the Emperor Nero in Rome. But you know what the plan B was that we got out of it? The letter to the Romans. Oh my gosh, like, can we see that? Can you see that? Like, like Paul acting and genuinely saying, this is exactly what I desire. And this is what I'm praying would happen. And then when all the dust settles, the Lord provided, man, probably the the most beautiful, theologically rich, amazing letter in the entire scriptures, all because Paul wanted to go to Spain and he never made it. God, it's amazing how God can work through plan B in your life. Uh, We can participate in his mission by giving him our future plans. Um, you ever ask a question when you pray? I, let me back up. When I was, uh, maybe about six weeks ago, I was praying with some friends They're here tonight. And in the middle of the prayer, I, I asked, I, I, I said, God, what do you want us to do? And I didn't answer it for him. So, I mean, they're, like in that prayer and in Paul's prayer, like there's specific things that I shared. God, we're praying for this. We're asking for this. We're longing for this. We, God, we desperately want to see this happen. But God, what do you want? Do you know how freeing that, like that began a chain reaction domino effect of me pressing into a substantially deeper two-sided relationship with God, specifically through prayer, where I'm not just, where I'm not just giving God a bunch of commands and then attaching please to the front of those. Okay, God, please sell my house, right? (laughs) Okay, God, please um, give me money that we need money this this week, you know? Okay, God, please open up a door for this. Like, they actually don't sound like asking. They sound like somebody who's like saying please to just say a command. But when's the last time you ask God what he wants? God, what do you want? with this thing. This is exactly what I care about. This is, this is what I want, but what do you want? His plans aren't always our plans, but it's always a good plan. Uh, here's something we have to wrestle with, though. How do we know something is God's will? And it's happened to you. It's happened to me. Inevitably, I've said it to people. Well, I believe that God's will for your life is that fill in the blank. Here's the thing. I'm not a fortune teller. Um, 
It's like there used to be an adult bookstore in St. Charles just down the street and around the corner. It's probably good that you don't know where it was anyway. So, but it's amazing that this conversation, if you fast forward like 15 years, it's amazing that the conversation is exactly the same now. Like it's one thing to walk up to that adult bookstore door and say like, okay, God, and you would look so weird doing this too. Okay, God, eyes closed. I'm gonna walk in. Stop me if you want me to. If you don't want me to go, just turn around. I'll go back to, to, to JJ's, you know, or, or whatever. I mean, that, that's absolutely ludicrous. Like, do you know, like, can you even think for a second that it would be God's will that you would walk in? Absolutely not. And again, like the general will versus the specific in that. But it's hard to take the, the things that are generally very clear. You know, if you're gonna ask God, I, I think I'm gonna go murder a whole bunch of people tonight. Can you tell me if, if what do you want? You know, I'm sure he's probably gonna say no, like in some, in some way or another. Maybe send a pigeon or something or send the police maybe by your house. That would be a, a firm no. Um, but how do you know something is God's will? In a specific sense, this is what so many of us are wrestling with each and every single day. God, what's your will for this thing? Or God, I, th- this is the way I saw it work out. Th- was that what you wanted? Here's four things I wanna wrestle with together. How to know something is God's will. Number one, it glorifies God. It glorifies God. If it's not glorifying God, then it, it, at least in the present tense, it's, it's not his will. Number two, it agrees with scripture. I mean, if you're, if you're not opening the word to wrestle with how the Lord desires things for your life, then you're, then you're walking in blindfolded. It agrees with scripture. Number three, this is, this is huge, important. It is affirmed by other faithful believers. You know, I don't know that I've made very many bad decisions when I've really consulted other believers. I mean, if I really thought about that, I could, I mean, I've made a lot of really bad decisions in my life. I don't know if you're like me. <laughs> I've made a lot of bad decisions. I've made a few good ones. Um, but I don't know of any bad decision I've made that I haven't genuinely asked other, other Christians into. Tell me what you're seeing here. Especially Christians who are, who are in their word, who are glorifying God, who are praying, who are seeking his will in their own life, right? I mean, I just wanna encourage you, if you find yourself trying to isolate yourself from advice or uh, just from some interaction and fellowship, bringing other brothers and sisters in Christ into your particular issue, I just wanna encourage you, that's not the safe place to be. The, The Christian life was never ever designed to be lived out in isolation, not for one day. So, how do we know something is God's will? It, it is or, or can be affirmed by other believers. No brainer. Number four, last one. It bears fruits of relationship and obedience to God. It bears fruits of relationship and obedience to God. So we have, we have this wrestling right now. You guys have been praying for my family to sell our house. We're trying very hard, I promise you. <laughs> It still hasn't sold. I mean, the answer has been no, like every day for six months. But it's but we're still praying, you know. Um, but we have some things we got to wrestle with in this because is like is is the issue dead once we just buy the house? Like, do we know it's God's will because it had a walkout basement, you know, or a pool? Which those are two things we would probably not want to have. We love dogs, by the way. We want room for. We would probably fill the pool in to let our dogs run around. But like, is it God's will because we just feel good about the house? No, I mean, we firmly have been pray, praying in this. Like, God, give us a house that we can do ministry in. That, that is 
that is specific to the ways that we can do ministry as a family. God, welcome others into, into fellowship with you through this house. God, help us to serve others through this house. Help us, help us to draw closer to you as a family, as individuals, as, as husband and wife through this particular house. It's, I mean, like I've, I've played that game where you just try to get the thing and you think it's God's will because it looks awesome, but then you realize it's been about you the whole time. Oh man, it's God's will because it all worked out. Well, I don't know looking back. I mean, I don't know, maybe it was God's will that I bought a house that tanked in value. Maybe he was trying to show me something. But I can tell you in that time, it was all about me. It wasn't about God whatsoever. It was about me and my awesome American dream life that I wanted to raise up that glorified me. So how do you know something is God's will? I just want to encourage you to take whatever situations are in your life right now and lay these things on them. I, I don't know that it's going to show you like which, which door to open, which path to take, but I promise you that, that hopefully it'll give you clarity of which ones not to take which decisions to avoid, which, which ways to stay the path. So how do you know something is God's will? He does guide us. Paul continues on. Two more verses packed with love. He says this in verse 10. When Timothy comes, remember his disciple Timothy, when he comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for for I'm expecting him with the brothers. So you've got to put yourself back in the shoes of, of what Paul is doing here. This church and Paul are not, again, like they're not on the worst of grounds, but they're definitely not on the best of grounds. Can you, can you sense him trying to set Timothy up well here? Like when Timothy comes, please put him at ease, like ease, peace. I mean, it's, 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 it's sad that Paul has to say that, but he's probably trying to warn them like, I'm going to see this guy because he says this, that he may return to me for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Is he really saying like, when I send Timothy to you, can you treat him well enough so that he's still alive so he can come back to me? Maybe, I don't know. He's, he's begging this church to treat his disciple well. And what do Timothy and Paul have? I mean, this isn't Paul just looking at Timothy who's a guy that he's like, you know, Timothy... Um, you've got certain gifts that I think they just fit well in Corinth, and so you're just, you're just going to be a good tool for the Lord. I'm going to send you there. No, Paul and Timothy have a history, man. Paul is the one who sought him out and found him, who spoke faith in him. This, Timothy, this guy who, who's, whose mother was, was Jewish, became a Christian, whose father was a Greek, wanted nothing to do with the gospel. Timothy received his faith from his grandmother and his mother. Paul took that guy, put him under his wing, said, follow me as I follow Christ. And you know what Paul did? He invested into Timothy for over 20 years of his life. He invested into Timothy. Not because, um, not because Paul thought Timothy was just like the awesomest dude ever, but because he realized that, that God could do so much through this guy. That God's desires for Timothy were way bigger than Timothy could understand. And Paul stepped in to help him see that. He says, you know, basically, when I send Timothy, you, you get me. He says at the end of verse 10, for he's doing the, the work of the Lord just as I am. Like, he's, he's the next best thing from me being there. He's going to come ahead. And I love that. I love how discipleship creates um, and, and mimics certain characteristics in this. Uh, those of you who are in discipling relationships here at Matthias, we, we passionately love the call to make disciples. And not because we're perfect and not because we haven't figured out and not because it's easy but because Jesus gives us a joyful opportunity to invest in others and to walk with Christians that are not as mature in the faith as we are. So, uh, true story, this is pretty funny. I've been discipling Sam Youngblood for, for quite some time. 
And Sam and I, you know, I wouldn't have seen it at first, but a couple months ago, like, I think conversations with Sarah, it came out every once in a while, like, man, you and, you and Sam were kind of alike. And I don't know if we were like that in the beginning, but we're more like that now. Are you in here, Sam? Okay, good. What color shirt are you wearing? Okay, almost, almost. Here, true story, this is funny. Uh, I wear, I don't own one other shirt like this in my entire wardrobe. I wore a t-shirt that's a, a brand new, like, bright neon yellow workout shirt. And I wear it to Lot Family, and everybody I walked to was like, man, that's bright. Like, I've never seen a shirt as bright like that. What, what does Sam do? He walks in wearing some thick horn rim glasses and a bright neon shirt. I'm like, dude, this is what discipleship does, man. You get me, you get him. Investing in one another. Because Paul, it's evident that this, that this is the reality. Paul really, really cares about Timothy. Which makes this all the more difficult, but all the more sweet of an investment. Third way that we can participate in God's mission is by giving him our loved ones. This is tough. Money's hard. Future's really hard. But my loved ones? Are you serious? I was thinking about this, thinking about Genesis 22 the other day. It's a story where God tells Abraham, Abraham, you, you're the one that I'm, I've got this covenant with. You fear me. But if we're going to keep going in this, I, I need to know that you fear me a little more. This is my own version, by the way. So God tells Abraham, bring your son Isaac up on the mountain, sacrifice him there. It's so hard to let go of your loved ones. And so as as Abraham is up there, as he bound Isaac, as he's laying him on the altar that he's made, as he's got his, his hand in the air, the knife is in the air, the angel of the Lord stops him. And says, stop, Abraham, behold, now that I know that you fear God because you've not withhold your only son from me. My goodness. Do you think God loved Isaac more than Abraham did? And the answer is yes. Do you think Abraham wrestled with that? Absolutely. But anything that God asks from us, he surely cares about it more than we do. I promise you, he values it more than we do. He sees value more clearly than we do. It's tough to give up your loved ones. Uh, I was driving in this morning, uh, and I actually kind of, my morning looked a little different. My, um, my mother was going in for a, a heart procedure. Surgery, surgery sounds so official and scary, doesn't it? I mean, but it was surgery, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not super invasive. There's all the little excuses you could make, but, but it was supposed to be basically a scope surgery to, to deaden this and then have a little hole here and go through and do something there. And, you know, something that, something that this doctor does three times a day. The reality is I know that she's had this done uh, one other time on a smaller scale and, and she wasn't very, very quick to come out of it. And so, you know, I know that they say that there's like once in a 5,000 chance that somebody could legitimately die from this. But, I mean, I'm driving in this morning, honestly coming to reconcile the fact that, that my mom could die this morning. And, and there's nothing I could do to help that. I could try to stand in the, in the surgery room, and I would probably just make things worse if I'm, like, pacing over the surgeon the whole time. Like, did you get that? Are you... I have no idea what I'm talking about. So, 
as I have no control over that situation, on the way in this morning, I began to say, God, this is what I want. I want a safe surgery, health, many more years of, of a better quality of life. I, I want this day to, to go well. I want it to be peaceful. God, I, I want you to be glorified. But that's how I want it to happen. And then I, I put it back to him. I, I, and this is a risky question. I said, but God, what do you want? And I didn't answer it for him. And then it's funny, when you start praying like that, other things that you care about start to come up also. And so then I just, I didn't even plan this. Instinctually, I'm driving in, it's like five in the morning and I'm on Highway 370 and I just say, God, this is what I want for Sarah. This is the ministry that, that we've talked about. This is the ways that I've seen you work through her. This is the ways that I would love, God, for you to bless her and affirm her today. These are the ways, God, that, that I would love to, God, see her protected and affirmed and, and, and see herself the way that you see her. This is, and I was very specific about that. This is what I want. But what do you want? And you get to even more soft parts of your heart when you start saying your, your children's name one by one. God, this is what I want for Reed. This is who I see him to be. God, I, I pray that you would protect him today, that you would guide him, that you would, God, that you would keep him from harm, that you would, that you would shield his eyes and his heart and mind from things that would be hurtful to him. God, I, 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 pray that, I pray that you would lead him. God, I pray that you would do things through him throughout his life, God, but that's, that's what I want. What do you want? Um, and then I get to Blaine, and I'm already like, Every commercial that comes on, by the way, like every kindergarten commercial, I'm already crying because that's like a year away, you know. And every single time, it's just another reality of, man, like I cannot control these things that I care the most about. And so what does God want? He wants me to give them to him. To not just give up. And that, that's what my dad did. He gave up, not just to give up, but to submit control and to say, God, help me to steward these things as an investment into your kingdom. Your kingdom work happening through my family. Your kingdom work happening through my life. Your kingdom work happening through my resources. There's, um, there are so many loved ones that we have and will, I promise, have opportunities to, to give to God for the sake of his mission through this church. I mean, think back about this mission. I've been praying that Matthias Lot Church would be a disciple-making movement catalyst for about two and a half years. And that's a prayer that's way bigger than anything that I know the answer is to it yet. That's a huge prayer. We've been praying, there's a group of us, the core team around this, we've been praying that Matthias Lot would be a missionary factory for, for local and international missionaries. We have an amazing, we, I would say we have, of any church in the entire county, we have one of the most amazing opportunities to send out missionaries. Whether it's back to your hometown or across, across town or across the world. And I hope you understand and, and I pray that you see this more and more as time goes on. There are a lot of things happening. So many things to celebrate. And it's not celebrating because 
God is saying, hey, you know all that riffraff that you don't like? Which this isn't, this isn't you, by the way. This is just me, like, sarcastically. Like, you know all the bums that you don't want to be around anyway? Like, yeah, send them out on mission. Like, he never says that, okay? Like, yeah, you know your enemies? Pray that they would become missionaries and move away from you. No, that's that. He doesn't, it's not how it's working, you know? No, we love everybody in this church, but the reality is, is when he says, do you think I love Justin and Mary Bean more than you? Do you think I love Tyler and Crystal Gleaves more than you love them? Do you think I love Beth Ann Belak more than any of you can love her? Do you think I love Natalie Jackson more than any of you could love her? Do you think I love Erica Grog more than any of you could love her as she's in the process of applying to be a full-time missionary in Africa? Do you think I love the boys that the Snodgrasses are adopting on Friday more than you could, more than you could love them? Man, our opportunity to participate in his mission locally and all over the world is to be willing to give up our money and to give, like to really give where there's need. Our family is really celebrating this. This is the first time in my entire life that I've been able to, to really, uh, on a monthly basis, support a full-time missionary. My cousin's a missionary in Africa. Her and I are the only two, uh, the only two believers uh, in our entire generation in my family and after us. It brings us so much, so much joy to be able to send that check or click that bill payer, however the heck that money gets to her. It brings us so much joy even more to pray for her, to give, like to give our time, to give our plans for her, to give up control over her. And that is our opportunity here at this church. How many will be sent out from here? How many, man? How many will be sent out to Jefferson? Letting go of, of, of our money, letting go of our plans, letting go of people that we care about, letting go of our time, letting go of our resources, letting go of everything because we believe that as we give these things to God, they're investments into a kingdom that is better than anything we could ever imagine because of the resurrection of the hope of Jesus Christ. Amen? Better than anything we can imagine. I want to end with this. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, when a man found, uh, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing the world has ever experienced that says in order to gain everything, all you have to do is lose everything in order to find everything in Jesus. We've been given the most amazing gift that the world has ever seen in a resurrection hope. And so our opportunity is to let go of all of the other wonderful, amazing stuff that God has given us in this life. Believing that everything we have, God, all that I am, all that I have, it's yours for your purposes. God, what do you want? That's our opportunity. Because Jesus paid the ultimate price. There's no more price to pay. Everything we let go of, it's not about, it's not about paying a price. It's about giving something up because he paid a price that we could never pay. It's about investing our time, our treasure, our talents, our hopes, our dreams, our family, our loved ones. It's about giving up all of that stuff every single day because Jesus wins. And believing that his plans, his purposes, 
are higher and bigger and more loving and more amazing than everything we could ever hope for. So everything, all that we have, all that we are, it's his. God, I pray that you would that you would just show us, Father, that the value of what we have in Christ cannot be compared to anything else, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation cannot compare to what we have in Christ. God, we thank you for the resurrection hope that we have. And God, I pray that you would stir in the hearts of those who are wrestling with what it means to, to participate in this mission in a deeper way. So God, I pray most of all for those who are struggling to give up control over things in their life to you. And I pray that you would help us all, Father, to, to live that journey together. Giving up control because we believe that you are worthy, that you are good, that you're amazing. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the ultimate price, for buying our sins, giving us victory through your resurrection.